Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Gallagher Jr. You can find us on Instagram at Only One Shot Golf. You can find me on Instagram at GallagherJR or Twitter at GallagherJRGC. We appreciate you listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And uh, to all our listeners all over the world, we appreciate all that support we've had. Uh, and we uh, look forward to some many more podcasts with everybody. But today, uh, it's going to be a fun uh, podcast to get a hold and to talk to fellow Tennessee Vol, uh, 1990 SEC individual champion Mike Spoza. He went twice in college. He's a member of the 1991 Walker Cup team, who was an incredible team. They had uh, Mickelson, David Duvall, and so many great players. He turned pro after that. He won the 1998 Boise Open, which was on the Nike Tour. Played the PGA Tour for several years and is now the senior manager of junior and collegiate development tour department. All right, let's see if we can get Mike Spoza on the podcast on the phone here. And we do. Mike, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, good to have a Tennessee Vol here today on Only One Shot Golf. Oh, Jimmy, good to hear your voice, my friend, and thank you for having me. Well, uh, I always ask everybody how they got started in golf and maybe who influenced them at a young age, uh, but who got you started? You know, we, um, we we lived on a golf course that had a tour event. It became the Honda Classic, but back when I was a little guy, it was the uh, Jackie Gleason Inverary Classic. And mm-hmm. um, my dad's second cousin was the guy who used to host the Price is Right before Bob Barker. And so he really? played in yeah, he played in the Wednesday Pro Am and because, you know, of his celebrity status back then he I think he got paired with maybe Tom Weiskopf. And he worked it out to where I could walk inside the ropes and I must have been, I don't know, five, six years old and that was it. I just said I'm gonna be playing golf and I wanna be inside these ropes when I'm doing it. How cool was that? I mean, I always like to hear those stories because we always wonder, I mean, there's something that sparks the interest in a kid. And that obviously did for you to be right there. Tom Weiskopf, too, on top of that. But Yeah, uh, and, that, and that was in Tom's heyday. And so, yeah. yeah. Just, you know, did you have, storm. did you, when you were playing in, in junior golf, were there a lot of tournaments you played in? Because things have really changed. Everybody starts going nationally and everything. What kind of junior tournaments were you playing in? And how were you going about picking those events? Early on, we, we would uh, vacation up in the Pocono Mountains in the summertime, and I uh, played the Pocono Junior Tour, which was you know fairly competitive. I'm I'm probably at this time ten to twelve years old, and and there was uh, a lot of obviously good tournaments. I was growing up in South Florida, very close to Eagle Trace and Coral Springs, and uh, so we had you know Florida State Junior and and the South Florida junior and I started playing good in these things. And back then there wasn't as many AJGA events, but I started mm-hmm. getting invited to the Rolex tournament of champions and, and, uh, you know, the American junior classic, I think it was called. They played it at Innisbrook, but there was, yep. um, there was some travel. Um, it didn't get more intense until probably I was about 16 years old and started playing in things like, junior world out in california and the big eye insures youth classic um up in indiana where you're from mm-hmm. uh, but shoot nowadays ajga they got over 120 events i know it's insane i mean when you when you look back at that and you were young before you like you said 15 16 you went up north so you got to play on different grasses how important was that to kind of make that adjustment because a lot of times kids come from florida or from indiana and midwest and switch grasses that's a big transition big change and challenge for them yeah that's very true i mean it was i i 
had to learn how to uh, pitch and shift the ball and, and use the trajectory to control the release. And my stroke, mm-hmm. which was, you know, this kind of pop Bermuda grass stroke, you know, that doesn't drive too well on, on slick, bent, or Poana green. So I, it was great that I was able to play and have those experiences at a younger age. And we, we had a great player who was the head pro at the course I grew up at in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. Tony Valentine, he'd won several Florida Opens. And so I, I would ask him to teach me how to change my short game and, and uh, w- without going up north or without going out west and playing through my teenage years, I, it would have been a struggle when I went to college. So he was your instructor basically throughout, you know, as, as a kid. And that's always important to have someone that can teach you those things. And, you know, everybody wants to go to a top 100 teacher, but it's those local guys that really grow the game and really are great teachers in themselves. They just don't want to go out and, and tra- traveling the tour. So, I mean, my dad was like that. I mean, he, of course, he had three kids make it to the tour, but it's really a cool thing. But your recruiting process, what, what were you looking for when you were starting to be recruited and looking for a college to go to? What were the things that kind of stood out that you wanted to, to have uh, to help make that decision? Well, um, I didn't want to go too far from home, but I wanted to go far enough where I couldn't get back in a, in a single day. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no, I have the same way. By car. Um, you know, I wasn't very interested in going to any of the Florida schools, and you know, they were good back then. University of Florida has been good for a very long time. Miami had a golf team back then. They were very good. But, uh, you know, I, I did my trips kind of throughout the southeast. I entertained playing for – Rick LaRose at Arizona, he and I got along great whenever he was out recruiting at some of the bigger tournaments and uh, actually went up to Knoxville as a last trip. Um, I think we were allowed four then, maybe still is that number. And Jimmy Johnston, who was a good buddy playing the AJGA stuff, I knew he had already committed. And I went up there mm-hmm. and I just could, I couldn't believe how nice the facility was and you know, the landscape was mountainous and rolling hill. I mean, it was really, really pretty, so unlike what I had grown up seeing. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, them having, I think at the time, six different courses that we had access to each day of the week. You know, we didn't play on Sundays usually. And then they had their own driving range, the range that you hit balls on. And, you know, a lot of schools back then didn't have their own facility like that where, where the public wasn't allowed. Um, mm-hmm. and so I just, I came back home and I told my parents, I said, I, I found a place that I'm going to go to school. I mean, I like coach Malarkey and they'd already had a couple older experienced guys on the team, Tom Carr and Gibby Gilbert jr. And I was like, man, we're going to be pretty good right out of the bat. And it, it's going to make me a better player. And, and I chose Tennessee. So it didn't bother you going up north with with the weather being possibly cold and, and maybe a completely different climate than you grew up in? didn't bother you at all? Yeah, you know, it really didn't. It was a little shocked that first snow we got my freshman year. We got four inches, and it was hard walking up to the hill for those freshman classes, as you remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, busting your butt going up those stairs because I don't know how to walk on ice. And, uh <laughs> but, but you know what? It wasn't too bad because we had those hitting bays and we had those space heaters. So you could hit balls out into the snow. And it wasn't like Knoxville got a lot of snow or anything. And then you just pick them up when it melted. 
and then shoot, as soon as we were getting off for Christmas break, I was going back home to Fort Lauderdale playing um, all the time. It's 80 degrees. And then by the time we go back to school in January, we started to uh, travel and play our spring schedule. So it really wasn't too bad. And I'm glad I did it because it's a different way of, of learning how your body moves in drastic temperatures and going out and, and qualifying when it's 42 degrees and you've got like four layers on and a ski hat, you know, is not the same as hitting golf balls in a golf shirt, shorts in, in Fort Lauderdale. So, you know, it, those, it, those, yeah, those, that, that, those qualifiers are tough. They're very it, tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was tough. We had our six, seven and eight guys could mingle and, and qualify in the top five at any given week. So our qualifiers were very competitive, just like your qualifiers were tough. I remember all the guys on your team and, and yeah, that's a tough team too. Yeah, I mean, but that was the that was the fun part of it, and I think that's you, you made a good point. Is you wanted to go where you were going to be challenged and play against the best. When I went there, they hadn't really kind of kicked it in yet. Ricky Gregg was a great player, and and but it was my freshman year. Really, the guys that were a year ahead of me that redshirted Stewart and Jeff Walker and 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 all those guys. Uh, Kevin Giannick was already and Hamrick were already on the team, but those guys had kind of put it together, and, and it was. But I liked the fact that I could take some time off, that I didn't yeah. feel like I had to play golf every single day, and that's what I liked about it. And you mentioned driving range. We really – that driving range and practice facility came in just before – right after we left. Uh, oh, we really? were stuck at we yeah, We were stuck at Cherokee Park trying to hit balls – and, and pay attention, not looking at the sunbathers and all that other stuff. So we were trying to and, and not hit cars, but uh, it, it's changed so much. And you look at the facility they got now; it's just incredible. Uh, and, and they have them, they have them everywhere. But you guys, if I'm not right, I know you won the SEC as an individual at Annadale. Didn't the team win that same week as well? Yeah, we did. Um, I remember uh, we go in there, and Florida was the number one team in the country at the time. You know, they had Dudley Hart, Chris DeMarco, mm-hmm. and and Pat Bates, and Jeff Barlow. I mean, it, they, all, they had like four All-Americans on their team. And um, so, whatever, we were just playing, and, and we got ourselves in contention. I remember telling Coach Malarkey on that final third round, I said, look, I need to know how we stand as a team. I, I can figure out this individual thing. I'm playing with Jeff Barlow, who had the lead. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so Coach came up to me, uh, walking in, I think, into the fairway on 17. He said, all right, here's the situation. Uh, do you know how you stand? And the teams are tied. We're tied with Florida. And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and I had to lay up on 18 at par five. Hit my right. third, I had my third shot, I don't know, 15 feet or whatever. And Barlow had already missed birdie. So I knew the putt was to win the individual by a shot and get the team in a playoff. And I made it. Really? Oh, yeah, I made it. And then uh, we go into the playoff. And I, I think, I could be wrong, but I think I was the only guy on our team to par the first hole. The other four guys all made birdie and we beat Florida. Wow. See, I didn't know y'all want to play off. That is unbelievable. Yeah. That's a cool story. That is a cool story. And that was our second SEC championship at Tennessee. And and, and it was strange because it was 10 years after we won uh, to the day, which was exactly. always kind of cool. You won another tournament in college. Uh, did, when did you kind of decide, to, hey, I want to maybe try to play as a pro? Um, you know, I struggled after being – 
very successful in junior golf. And, uh, you know, I thought I should just roll into college and be one of the best, and I was not. And um, somewhere along the line, my sophomore year, I met Dr. Craig Risberg, who was a uh, psychology guy in the, in the uh, sports psychology department at UT. And we got to talk, and he was a golfer, and he he was the first person that really taught me how to have a pre-shot routine and, more importantly, a post-shot routine. You know, I was mm. very, very hard on myself all the time with, you know, unrealistic expectations on every shot, like, you know, a lot of players. Um, and, and he changed my whole way I approached it and started playing good that summer after my sophomore year. And when I came back, I was just – and not that I, I, I didn't win a lot, but I was – consistently top 10 and I continued to play like that in the summertime and just for two straight summers hardly finished out of the top 10 in any major amateur event and it was because of Dr. Is that why you majored in psychology or were you already majoring in that? Uh, Well that was a big part of it but the main part was I was just really struggling as a business major. (laughs) I hated classes and I was like I need something easier so I can practice. (laughs) Right. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. I had Kevin Janiga as my uh, lead dog and all the guys on our team, so they were always a, a year ahead of me, uh, mm-hmm. even though we were the same in playing class, so I always had that advantage, and that's the only reason I got through marketing in four years and some other stuff. But uh, you make the Walker Cup team in 91. Uh, how cool is that? I mean, it, it didn't really start becoming even a possibility until I made it to maybe the quarterfinals of the U.S. Amateur Um in 90 before Manny Zerman just absolutely drilled me. Um, mm. and, and I just kept, <laughs> I kept going and these, and people started to talk about that, not just in Knoxville, but like outside. And I, and it just was the only thing I focused on for the next six, eight months or whatever it was. And, um, I remember getting that call from the captain of that, uh, 91 team, Jim Gabrielson. And I just mm-hmm. figured that it was going to maybe be a call, that you know sorry but you know you were so close but didn't make it because they picked four guys right out of the gate i think it was phil mickelson david duvall alan doyle and jay siegel they picked them like in june of that summer and then the remaining six spots you know, we were we were playing for and i thought that right. i was in there and he called me at whatever it was two three weeks before the matches and and he said something to the effect of would you be on um my team representing the United States for the Walker Cup matches. And I mean, it was just the greatest feeling I ever had in my life. And, uh, and you were on a heck, that's a heck of a team. There's some pretty good names on that team. That's almost like a dream team put together. Uh, but, you know, you, you go through that experience. Like I said, it was a goal of yours. You, you turn pro. You know, Q School always has some nightmare, I guess, stories or whatever. You don't get your card right away, though. What was that like for you, you know, having that success and maybe – not quite getting exactly where you wanted to do and go to right away. Um, it was a horrible experience for me. My first Q school, I had, we just come, we finished that Walker cup. I stayed the week after and played in the British amateur, come back. I go to the Monday qualifier for the Callaway gardens tour event. It might've been like the Chrysler challenge or some Buick mm-hmm. challenge or something Buick like challenge. that. Buick yeah. challenge. Yep. And, I, and I shot, I don't know, whatever, 66 or seven in that Monday and got in. So I'm like, bam, I'm right playing in a tour event without needing an exemption. 
And about two weeks later, I went to the first stage of Q school and didn't even snip it. <laughs> wow. And so now I'm like, I don't even know what to do. I didn't know about other tours or mini tours or I just, I knew about the PGA tour and I knew about the Hogan tour and that was it. Mm-hmm. And and now I'm not on either one. So it was tough. Um, and I, I ended up going and playing in Canada that summer, back to Q school the fall. This time I made it to second stage before missing again, back up to Canada. And by then my game started to get a little bit better. I'm used to traveling on my own. Um, my, my wife, who at the time were dating, traveled and caddied for me. So we became a team, and I made it to the finals of Q School, which got on to the uh, it was the Nike Tour at that point. And um, it was the same kind of learning learning curve out there, Jimmy. For me, I just was never real quick at things, and uh, you know, it took a few years before I started getting comfortable. And you know, first time you see your name on the leaderboard, it's you, you know you start thinking about how it could change you, and then your game goes south. And then the second yeah. time you see it up there, you, you do it less. And then, you know, you just keep getting it, keep getting it up there. And eventually you just, it, it, it's, it's just normal to see it. And it's just like, I still got to shoot scores and, and, and that kind of thing. But um, it did, it took me a while until 98. I finally got through and I had a good season and we go to Boise and Boise's kind of late in the summer. And it was always one of the bigger events that had a larger purse. And, um, and, and I, and I ended up winning it and, uh, we, we still hadn't for sure locked a card cause I think they were graduating 10 at the time, but I wow. just, I kept finishing in the top five and locked it up. And I don't know, I think I finished maybe six on the money list that year and, uh, and got onto the tour and, but it was, I was 28 years old when I got onto the tour and, uh, you, <laughs> you know, nowadays if, if you're not out there winning events in the first couple of years it's just like what happened to that guy yeah no it's yeah, true i mean expectations I, but, have gotten so out of whack but, right <laughs> well you you mentioned canada and and there's a lot of guys you know david toms i mean mike hine and these guys are tour winners they did they went up with their wives they cat they went up there they learned how to play they learned how to travel it sounds basic but mm-hmm. it's not uh, you you know you don't have a coach over there holding your hand telling you all right we're gonna go here boys we're going here 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 and here uh, you're on your own and you said it took a few years but you know when you look back at those years what did you learn from that experience that helped you when you finally got your card and how rewarding that was what did you learn from those experiences? Um, boy, that's a good question. You know, I I learned that I, I needed to practice more. I learned that um, my game was never going to be the kind of game where I could just overpower or or shoot super low numbers my game was consistency hitting fairways and greens and and you know just being sharp inside 50 yards and because i started to focus more on that and and being more comfortable with the guys that you know i was playing against which is a big thing too were were the were the main points but and you know this and for the any listener that are playing college and all this, you know, you leave junior golf and you go to college and now you're playing against the best players of a four year gap pretty much. And then you turn mm-hmm. pro and now you're playing against the best college players over the last 30 years. You got guys yeah. 20, 21 to 49 years old out there 
and you're seeing names that, you know, are household names from when you were growing up. I remember getting a pair of Billy Kratzer. I was like, holy cow, I'm playing with Billy Kratzer in a Nike tour of them, which is mm-hmm. weird. But you get comfortable with that, and you, you see that, you know, hey, my game can hang with a lot of these guys. And, you know, they're not uh, put on, on this pedestal that we tend to put them on because we've seen them on TV. Like, you know, you're actually one of these guys. You mentioned the younger guys. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that trend's going uh, with these younger guys coming out and not having instant success, but pretty big success and winning tournaments? Why do you think that's happening? Is it is it uh, just the knowledge they have out there, the instruction? What is it? Uh, college golf yeah. obviously prepares them for it. Yeah, obviously the preparation is, is better. Um, they're in better physical shape. They're stronger. They know more about their golf swings. Uh, between the videos and all of these uh, TrackMan or GC Quad type radar devices, there's really no gray area anymore. You know exactly what you're doing at all times. We used to just look at the divot and the ball flight, and that's how you kind of fix things. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I really think that Tiger Woods, doing what he did from junior golf through college, and then uh, turning pro, and you know, here I am, world, and and boom, he goes from missing cuts in the majors as an amateur to winning the Masters after shooting forty on the front nine by what he went that twelve by twelve or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you know, these kids now are like, well, that's how they grew up. Like, it's okay to just go out there at an early age and and dominate. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're just not freaked yeah. out by it, and, and the it just constantly gets validated over and over and over with these guys. I mean, we can go back over the last 10 years and man, it's, it's amazing. Well, they're also getting exemptions in playing while they're in even junior golf. Uh, the top AJGA guy gets in or uh, yeah. some events and the top college players. So they're getting that experience. Like you said, it's, it's getting over the intimidation factor and realizing, Hey, I can play with these guys. And, and, and you have to tell yourself that I don't know if, you know, I was a little more humble with that, and I fought that confidence a little bit. But once you got out there and you felt like, hey, wait a second, they hit bad shots too. And, right. you know, they minimize their mistakes, and I think that's what makes them great. But you play for several years on the PGA Tour, and, and, and you know, this, we're kind of to make this transition. Everybody goes in as you finish fourth at New Orleans. What were those years like on the PGA Tour when you finally got out there and experienced that experience? Yeah, I mean it- – it's it's awesome to just be on tour and it's it's great you know when you're able to lock your card up um i I just don't know really if i ever truly believed i was good enough to to be the guy who goes out there and contends week in and week out i mean you've had an unbelievable career on tour multiple wins and Ryder cup and i was this guy who was just trying to keep a job and I, I really struggled with getting over being a number. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the biggest difference in professional golf versus any level of amateur golf. You know, your, your life is a number. It's a FedEx Cup list number. It's a money list number. It's a score number. It's am I getting in the tournament? What alternate number am I? What's the cut number? It's just be, it, it was overwhelming sometimes to me because I tried to control it too much. Um, and, and the few years that I did play good, it was just more of getting off to an, a good start early in the year and almost feeling like the pressure was off and you were playing with house money. Unfortunately, I just didn't have many years like that. Well, you make, that's a great point. I've never heard anyone say that that way. 
the number, and that's true. I mean, you're a number you get through school, tour school. You're a number to get in the events. I mean, that's that's such a valid point, and we're seeing it more this year with the extension of the year and guys that are keeping their eligibility, and they're trying to, you know, especially on the Corn Ferry Tour, the guys that look like they would have had it locked up because of a limited schedule, they they got to go into another year. So it, it's, a, it's a constant out there, and there's so many good players, and they were better players when you played, and they're even more better players now. Uh, at the current time, but you decided to call it quits. Uh, what made you get into, or how did you get into work with Fuji Core, the shaft company? How'd you make that transition? I, I was in the finals at Key School in 07 after flopping back and forth on both tours with, you know, whatever conditional status. And I told my wife going into the finals, which is at Orange County National in Orlando, I said, Look, I know you're going to be stressing this week, but uh, if I don't get back onto the PGA tour, I'm going to do something else. I don't really know what that is. I've never had a job in my entire life, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to do something else. And so, uh, after the sixth round and shooting even par and, and barely missing by 14 shots, um, <laughs> I, I, I got in the car, called her and I started making phone calls. And I, I, I didn't really want to be an instructor um, right. but I wanted to help people and I still wanted to be involved with the tour with all my friends are out there. And, right. and I was like, man, I, I think I could do this repping gig. I mean, it's, it's just right up my alley. I can learn about the equipment. I'm really not a techie guy. I know what I like, but that's about it. And, you know, a few phone calls down the road, I heard that, uh, my buddy, Pat McCoy at Fujikura mm-hmm. was looking to, not travel as much, and they wanted to uh, have a, another tour rep out there full time. And so I called Pat up, and he said, "Well, our president at the time was Pete Sanchez in the U.S. was over in Japan. Send me a resume, and you know I'll let him know." While I'm like Pat, I said, "What do you a resume, dude? I don't have a resume." <laughs> I said, there's, my resume is the PGATour.com website thing. <laughs> so, yeah, look it up. <laughs> so he, la- he laughed, and I called a buddy of mine who, you know, was real slick at that kind of stuff, and he put together this thing that made me look a lot more accomplished than I was. And, uh, shoot, I don't know, it, it was pretty quick. About two weeks later, um, Pete called and said, meet us at the PGA show end of January. And, uh basically went for a final interview and my first event was at Pebble Beach for the AT&T as the Fuji rep, and it was so it was you, weird you didn't get much training in there so how did you learn about the different shafts I mean it's even more complex now and than it was back then but you know what kind of training did you have for that I mean other than you knew what you liked but I mean you didn't have a lot of time to get there and go oh here I got three months to learn this stuff yeah I did. And, um, you know, Pat, Pat sent me some literature. Um, and you know, I, I, there was the internet was kind of just getting going and you could find out some things. And I went out there two weeks prior to, uh, to that pebble and, you know, met with the guys that in the R and D department and they started explaining things like torque and frequency and what those numbers when changed, higher or lower um, would affect the golf club's delivery in a dynamic position. And um, that it just kind of intrigued me, and I was very interested in it, and I just kind of caught on pretty quick. 
And the biggest thing when you're out there as a shaft guy is you're in and out of all the trucks. So right. I'm, I'm learning about TaylorMade's product, Tideless product, Callaway's product, Ping's product. I mean, I'm getting a full variety of all of this. And I think that that ultimately prepared me to have the opportunity to do what I'm doing now at Callaway. That, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, so now, and, and you downplay it, but you know, I went to you because I know even less about shafts, but I know what feels good. And I think in three swings, I can tell you, yeah, that works or that yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, but you make a transition to Callaway and, and go to work for them as their tour rep. How difficult was that? Not difficult, but what were the challenges when you've got a guy that's playing a particular brand or type of club to get them to switch something they already like? How do you... I guess sell it. How do you make them uh, the challenges of getting them to make that switch? Yeah, so I mean that's a great question. At Fuji, you know, you're you're working for a company where you don't have contracted players. You're trying to use relationships and friendships to at least get the product tested. And at the end of the day, you know, some guys change shaft a lot, some guys don't, and. Fuji was already the number one shaft on tour. So it was kind of mm-hmm. like I was just trying not to mess it up for them. Um, and I just started doing things that other reps weren't doing on, on keeping specs. You know, I used to have a little zip drive hanging off my, um, you know, credential uh, necklace thingy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I just, I guess, got to be very good friends with some of the Callaway guys. And then my buddy who, ultimately got a job as the tour manager for Callaway, Dean Keiko. He and I were very good friends, and he's like, I'm trying to put together the right team, and I think you're the right guy to help these staff players of ours um, you know, play better. So it, it was completely different with Callaway because now I have a very captivated audience. Um, there's an obligation now because we're paying them, and mm-hmm. you know we have set times that we're going to go work on the range, and it wasn't like walking around as a shaft guy waiting for that right opportunity, you know, trying to sense the mood of the player or the caddy. And, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to balance. Um, but the once now working for a big OEM like Callaway, was like, man, this is way easier. I mean, I got these 15 guys out here, and, you know, that's the only ones I got to look out for day in and day out versus you have the entire field when you're a shaft guy. Did you ever get intimidated or feel pressure when you're dealing like a Mickelson or a top player with their equipment and how important it was for you to dial it in to get it right for them? Never. No, I never really felt intimidated. You know, I played a bunch with Phil and I I got paired on a Saturday one year at San Diego with Tiger. So, you know, I wasn't intimidated and I treated them all the same with the equipment. It mm-hmm. was, you, you know, Pat McCoy and John Hovis, who you know very well, and the rest right. of the folks at Fuji. It was a very systematic way of of coming up with the right combo. And I, I never lost the side of it to where I'm going to talk to them like a player. And let's talk about the feels of the shaft. And let's try to hit some different shots. Now hit me your go-to shots. And, and they seem to like that. And I don't mm-hmm. know if there were enough reps out there doing it like that at the time, but it just was a very natural fit for me from the get-go, really. Well, it had to be a big advantage for you being a player. They respected you as a player, and your knowledge 
as a player on what may work. So that had to be a big help for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty much instant validation. Once I learned the talk and the technical side of the equipment, then, you know, I already had the relationships with most of the players. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah the, the credibility was something I didn't have to establish. It was already there. In your current job, a complete switch. You start working with the juniors and the college players and, and their development. Uh, what's that transition been like for you? You've been doing that for a few years now, though. Yeah, I mean, it was just the greatest opportunity. I was at the Masters, um, and we ran a few houses there. And Chip Brewer, our CEO, was, was there that week. And we were having dinner, and, and he was talking about how he really wanted to get a junior program going. We were didn't have one. We supported some juniors, but it wasn't to the level of a Titleist or a King at the time. And um, he he said, and I'd like you to run it. I think these kids are going to be impressed with your knowledge of the product, but more impressed with the fact that you've achieved and done what they're trying to do. Not even so much on the tour, all that that helps, but it was more like, you know, playing college golf, walking, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of stuff. And, Man, he, uh, he he gave me an opportunity to honestly have the best job that I could have ever thought I could have. So, what do you when you're working with these kids? What what are you allowed to give them, or how can you approach them? I mean, there's got there are obviously rules and restrictions. So, what I mean, what all can you do uh, with these with these younger players? I know college rules are even stricter because the NCAA is involved there. But exactly, what is your job, and what are you trying to? You know, you're obviously looking for the future and the best players out there. Yeah, um, junior golf is, is more lenient. It's really more at AJGA events. It's it's the title sponsor of the event. If it's a competitor of ours, you know, there's a little bit more limited access at that point. But um, it's meeting the kids, meeting the parents. We have some really good reps that are out there with the boots on the ground getting the product in play. And we're having to start at very young ages. On the AJGA, that is the all-star level which are the 12 and 13 year olds um and i I told ship early on i was like look this is going to take an entire cycle for us to start seeing the better uh juniors moving into college as callaway kids because anybody who's really good right now who's getting ready to go to college has already has a relationship with one of our competitors so Mm -hmm. um we're now just seeing that a lot of the good college players are in callaway but it's from getting them in there at that all-star 12, 13 year age group um, in it. I mean, look at Rose Zhang just wins the U S women's amateur. She's a head to toe Callaway kid. So I interviewed her at the ANA. Sweet kid, sweet kid. Great player. Going to be a star. Oh my gosh. Just the way she composes. How I I was so impressed and she played with Stacy Lewis that last day at the ANA and and Stacy and I chatted for a minute as she walked off and, and she goes, man, she's just got it together, and she's so young, and she's so composed because she made, I think, two or three bogeys early on. I mean, she's playing in a ladies' major, one of the biggest events they play all year, and it never phased her. I mean, she she even came in that week saying, I didn't think I was going to play that well, but just a great player. And you're right, you're starting to see those kids kind of make that transition. But COVID's really kind of messed everything up, and how has that affected how you're doing your job now? Uh, especially with the, the the kids or the juniors are playing, but college golf is now starting back up and, and kind of keeping it in their own conferences. What are those challenges now been like? 
Well, it's been uh, very challenging from the junior golf side because the AJGA with all the CDC guidelines and, and different guidelines in each state and county, um, if you're not the title sponsor, then you're not, you can't go. Um, okay. And we, we, Callaway is presenting sponsor of three AJGA events. So, you know, now we're, we're handcuffed. So we had to use that opportunity. Let's do more home visits. Let's contact players that use our stuff. Make sure they're still getting the love and the product that they need during this lockdown. Let's maybe use this as an opportunity to go to some of these other type events like they've had several at, at Merido Golf Club in just outside mm-hmm. Dallas. And, you know, we just tried to find other angles and not just sit back and say, well, we got nothing to do now and let's just see how long this lasts. We've, we've used it as an opportunity to, you know, make a positive out of something that uh, everybody on the planet is, is going through and, and many people are struggling. Well, why not? One of the things you did is you had a Zoom call, and I had uh, Sam Burns, his instructor, on there. And I was, uh, I remember you calling me, go, Hey, what are you doing in the next 15 minutes? <laughs> I said, Well, <laughs> if I can get back to the house in 15 minutes on my walk, I'll, I'll be able to do it. So I got on there, and I thought that was cool. You had a bunch of the kids on there. You had Sam and his instructor answering questions. And, and, it, and that's, I mean, everything's kind of going to that. And, but I think for golf, even though this has been a horrible you know, time for our country and the world, Golf has actually benefited from this because more people were playing, more parents are taking their kids out there, and we're able to do it in social distance and all the things like that. And I think golf actually, you know, what didn't look like that for everybody, uh, but it's actually benefited a little bit from it. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Amy Amy Alston, who is now Amy Nicholas, she just got married. She is our junior rep, and she came up with that Zoom idea. And initially, back in the middle of March when we went on lockdown, it was we were doing them once a week. We're still doing them once a month. And the reception is still great. And we have different tour players on. I believe we got one coming up around the 1st of October with Maverick McNeely. And, you know, this is somebody that these kids can relate to because Maverick's not that long since he's been Mm -hmm. out of college. And, um, but yeah, I, I don't know, Jimmy. It's it's a tough tough world right now. But golf is uh, is certainly one of the sports that you know social distancing is not a problem. You're outside. Rounds of golf across the country are way up. Um, it's it was hard to get a tee time at the course I live at. Everybody yeah. was playing. Um, so I think in the end, it, it is maybe going to help people that might not be playing as much get more involved with golf and uh you know they need new clubs and they want the current technology and that's going to help their game as well so you know it's just another one of those situations where you try to make a positive out of a negative you know our friend tim reed who's the head of all the d- departments he, he he sent me a text after the u.s open he said do you think we'll see a lot of juniors and college players bulking up and and trying to gain that speed like bryson and i asked vj trolio uh, who does the podcast with me and, and is a great instructor. And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, they're going in that direction. I mean, I don't know if they're going to run out to Wendy's and eat a bunch of uh, double cheeseburgers, but they're definitely working that way. And as you said, the technology's out there. People are 
they're trying to speed up. Uh, they're trying to do it different ways. And I think that the game's changed so much from when we played. And, and But how do you guys keep up? And I, this may be our last question, but how do you keep up with all the advances? Because I went into Callaway now. I, I went out and got fitted. And as Tim said, I was the only player after my career was over to get fitted. But uh, I went out there, and it was just amazing the advances in technology that you all have. How do you keep up with everybody and, and keep going? <sighs> Chip Brewer is committed to spending the most money and using the most resources to make our R&D department the industry leader. Um, you know, without getting into the technology that we've had um, in the last several generations of drivers, but they've literally changed how drivers were made. It started with that gravity core. And then mm -hmm. we had the jailbreak rods and, and the benefits of, you know, the head not expanding and things like that and getting increased ball speeds. I mean, USGA has come up with a way to test faces because our epic driver was blowing the competitors out of the water with ball speeds. And, um, you know, it's because of Chip's commitment to really investing all of our resources into the future through our R&D department. Uh, that's how this is happening. I mean, it's certainly not anything that we're doing on tour. I mean, we're just basically trying to fit our players into the product that the R&D department's making us. And I mean, they just do a better job than anybody. Yeah, they do. And I've, and I've been fortunate uh, to have the relationship with you and Tim and you still take care of an old pro like me every once in a while. You're, I'm still trying to get that distance, but y'all have not got that technology for a 59 year old man to get any faster club head speed and ball speed. It's just not working for me, but I don't know if it ever will. I think that day is gone and passed, but it's but been just, fun. Uh, we just start having four milkshakes a day or whatever, <laughs> protein shakes, rice and drinking because, uh, yeah, I think we're yes. fast swinging fast, buddy. <laughs> well, see, I put on the weight. I just didn't do it the way he did. I didn't gain any speed. I lost it. So, I mean, I, I've already got that part down. But uh, we appreciate you taking some time and being with us and being on the podcast and catching up. Some fascinating stories and some great info for those kids and college kids and players out there listening to the podcast. And we, we're all over the world, so these people are everywhere. And so, you know, Callaway's, like you said, one of the industry leaders, and it's fun to be kind of on the team with y'all and, and to be part of that. And our friendships is important. And it's always good to have a Tennessee Vol on the podcast, Mike. But we appreciate you being with us. Uh, Jimmy, you're, you're, you're our brother. and uh, I appreciate you having us. And I can't wait to see you, buddy. Well, I'm going to end it with this. Remember, whether in life or golf, you only have one shot and you got to make it count. You made it count. Callaway's making it count. Golf's making it count. So, all right, brother. We appreciate you being with us.